Welcome back for another episode of Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. While we typically showcase guests from the investor or LP side, we also believe unique insights come from those that closely serve and study the industry. To that point, in today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking with Brom Rickey, who has worked closely with emerging managers since the very beginning, first serving as CFO at True Ventures and then starting Adura Advisors in 2012, which has become one of the top venture fund administrators in the world with over 350 clients. Brahm and I chatted about the early days of Adura Advisors, what he saw as the opportunity, how Emerging VC has evolved over the years, some trends he's seeing in particular with the managers he works with, and where he believes the industry is headed. Brahm, it's good to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, you know, it's hard to believe that you started Adura Advisors, what, almost 10 years ago. It was the early, early days of micro VC and emerging manager. What did you see as the trends that were happening in venture back in 2012? Yeah, I mean, I kind of framed the answer to this question by kind of looking back all the way to really kind of originally why I joined True Ventures um, back at kind of uh, day zero, if you will. So, you know, at, at True Ventures, um, met with um, John and Phil and John over there um, in kind of late 2005, early 2006. And really uh, saw the emerging trend of what I like to call the the next generation platform VCs. So the Trues, the Union Squares, the First Rounds, et cetera. You know, that's really kind of why I took that that opportunity and that risk, if you will, to to join them at the very earliest days. And kind of saw uh, another shift occurring in that uh, late 2011, early 2012 timeframe, which was the, you know, uh, they almost kind of like breakdown and distribution of, of venture, um, you know, with the rise of the emerging manager, for lack of a better term, um, as to like what to call it. And really kind of recognizing that um, it was going to be a growing trend and there was just much more the availability uh, for individuals to be able to go off on their own and really create more segmentation um, within the venture you know, community. You didn't need those platform VCs as much anymore at the early stages. And so, you know, really kind of understood that that was starting to occur and, you know, was really excited to, to kind of build um, a, a firm to really kind of support and, and help, um, you know, grow that trend. You mentioned it was a risk. And I, and I do remember this is around the time that I had joined my last stop, First Republic. And, you know, I remember you and I having a conversation. Hey, venture seems to be changing. There seems to be a transformative effect with more decentralization. But I remember also thinking on the counterpoint was, well, a lot of these people that want to start firms, I mean, this was two years after the global financial crisis, and people were starting to invest in alternatives again. But what kept a lot of people out from hanging their own shingle was the fear of fundraising. And just because you were a partner at, you know, let's get name brand fund X, going out on your own is very different, right? You go from an investor to now being an investor, but first having to raise the capital. What did you see at that time that's, that made you feel like, yeah, I think these people will actually raise, and I think more people will be comfortable? Was there any catalyzing factors back then? Yeah, I don't think there was any like big catalyzing factors per se, but more of a kind of a shift in mindset, if you will. Um, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of investors that are, you know, maybe um, a couple of rungs down, for, for lack of a better description, at a bigger firm, 
they're they're really kind of insulated from you know the LP relationships, the investor relationships, and I think that's what a lot of the the, the prevention was of people kind of going out on their own and trying to raise capital. Is that fear um, and not having kind of access to um, to investors at the end of the day, um, and the fear of the ability to actually be able to raise the fund to to support themselves effectively. And so I you know there was a, a shift in mindset. Um, but at the at the GP level, but of course at the LP level as well. You know, LPs were starting to get to become more receptive to the idea that you know, this was going to be venture of the future, um, and they needed to, to to help support that and to kind of get their head around it and to understand it and be able to um, invest in it. Um, you know, historically speaking, uh, a lot of the large LPs, you know, they maybe added you know, one to two relationships per year of new managers if at most, right? And so the concept of them adding a multitude of new manager relationships um, was just very foreign. And so that was the mindset that was kind of shifting is, you know, the, the, the willingness and a little bit more of an openness to, uh, to the concept of, of having, a, having a broader set of managers, um, you know, investing in a more you know, uh, segmented fashion. Yeah, and it was also around the time the Kauffman Fellow report came out or Kauffman Research report that came out that showed that small funds actually outperform large funds on margin, right? And there was so many reasons for that to be true. But if you look at the emerging manager market, in my mind, there's been multiple waves. You had the first generation folks, the Steve Andersons, the Jeff Claviers. You had the next generation, which would be like a Sunil at Amplify and others. There was like this massive growth in 2017 to 2020. And now we're looking like we're going into this force shift with solo GPs, rolling funds, more underrepresented. How have you seen the emerging manager market evolve? Because I know you work with a lot of firms. And remind me again, how many firms you work with? Yeah, so we work in total with 340 different firms, um, which is just you know, when we set out to to build this firm, I never thought that there would be even you know really kind of ultimately that many to be to be to be looking at, right? Let alone within our our stable of of amazing clients. Yeah, I mean, and it, you're right. Like from the 2017 timeframe onwards, just in the last four years, there's just been an explosion, you know, within the market. And I think that that mindset that I mentioned earlier is just you know really um, advanced uh, to to become the norm almost um, at this point. Um, and yeah, so lo- lots of shifts um, over um, over the course uh, as as this trend has kind of continued. Have you seen any difference in, in the type of managers that are raising right now versus what you saw, let's call it 2012 to 2016? What's different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back in the early days, you had um, what I'll say were kind of two main groupings of, of individuals kind of going off to, to raise their own funds. You had, um, you know, one grouping of, you know, kind of people spinning out of larger organizations. Um, so like Aileen, uh, you know, coming out of Kleiner, um, beginning Cowboy Ventures, right? And so they were client number three or four for us, right? So very early client for us. And, you know, we saw a lot of that, um, a lot of that type of individual. And then the other main grouping was, you know, um, people who had been inside of a company done very well and, you know, had done angel investing and then were looking to maybe kind of take that angel investing to the next level in terms of professionalizing it more and taking that to more of a fund structure. Um, and what you're seeing, so that, that was kind of like then, and what you're seeing now is, you know, just a much more multitude of people kind of, you know, stepping into, um, stepping into this world from various different backgrounds or, you know, coming out of, 
um, you know, out of a company and jumping right into venture, you know, just kind of, you know, moving beyond that, that angel investing phase, if you will. Uh, and so, yeah, just, we're seeing a lot more um, of that versus, um, you know, kind of what's, what started the whole trend. Yeah. And it does seem like there's a lot of them. There's people that are, are doing it through where they start off with syndicates and then they start their own, you know, captive traditional closed-ended fund. There's people that do it part-time, right? Through a rolling fund structure. But as you look at the people that are out there, you know, now raising, and in, there are these different archetypes, no question about it. And we are seeing, I think, more of the, let's call it operator or angel investor turned investor and turned full-time venture investor. Fundraising right now is an interesting topic that everyone talks about. And there's two types of LPs. There's institutional LPs and there's the non-institutional LPs, which primarily comprise high net worth individuals and family offices. What are you seeing in terms of fundraising trends for the larger group of people that don't have long track records at an existing shop? What do you find that's working for them as they go through their fundraise? Yeah, I mean, they definitely have to find a way to kind of prove themselves. And what I mean by proving themselves is really effectively at the end of the day, pr proving out their strategy. Um, I mean, because there's so much segmentation within the, the venture realm now, you really do have to have a very defined strategy, a very... Um, you know, pretty specific and, um, you know, really be able to prove that out. And the reason I say that is you have to be able to prove that out to, to kind of jump to that next institutional grade of investor, right? They need to see examples of your ability to execute on that strategy. And so what we're seeing a lot of people do is being able to tap into that family office, that high net worth community um, in a greater way. And I think that there's been so much uh, attention placed on the venture community that, there's a lot of attractiveness uh, to investing in venture for the high net worth in the family office. And so they have definitely taking, taken a more um, aggressive approach in terms of seeking it out. Um, and so that, I think that's you know, definitely benefited all of um, you know, these, these early uh, fund managers and being able to um, effectively and efficiently raise capital. We're also seeing more, um, more involvement in, you know, in, in various pockets, um, you know, from a corporate perspective and things like that, you know, corporations even being cognizant and recognizing the fact that uh, it makes a lot of sense for them to be involved um, in investment firms or investment organizations that really make sense for their ultimate strategy and, and their and their ultimate goals. And so we're, we're, we're finding that because there's so much attention and so much interest in venture in general that the, the, the pockets of capital are out there. But it's still very much a difficult um, process for these early managers raising fund one to be able to effectively and efficiently tap into um, those the, those pockets of capital um, that makes sense for them. So it's it's definitely still a long slog at the end of the day. It's very true that I'd say in institutional investors is more and more that are actually playing and investing in a fund one, typically more on the side of if they've come out of a let's say a legacy brand firm that they can recognize and they built a relationship either with that firm or that partner that's left and started their own thing. And an example would be, you know, someone like a footwork, for example, just closed at 175 million. Now they brought both things, right? They brought somebody with institutional background and somebody on the operator side. But where I, I find the biggest struggles, at least over the last, let's call it decade, are the people that are those angel investors that didn't work at a firm or people that worked at a company and now are starting their own thing. And the issue with non-institutional capital, although it's growing, is that it's hard to find family offices, individuals, 
they don't hang a shingle and say, I'm open for business. For all the managers you've worked with, because I know you've worked with so many fun ones, what are some of the tactics that you've seen work in really penetrating that side of the, uh, the capital market? Yeah, I mean, it's all about introduction and, you know, getting getting introduced by the right um, to the right people by the right people. Um, and, you know, I almost joke with a lot of uh, a lot of potential you know, new funds that come to us. You know, the million dollar question is always, hey, do you do you, you know, how do you recommend kind of tapping into this family office world? Because that's ultimately where we want to raise money. And despite the fact that we have we effectively have insight into, you know, where all of these you know, uh, investors are coming from. It's still a black box, even to us. Um, at the end of the day, just because you know each of these family offices, each of these groups, they operate so independently that you really kind of have to be able to tap into their network in some form or fashion. So there's no, um, you know, there's no efficient way to tap into that still today. And so it's like I said, it's still a struggle um, to to be able to do that. So it's just about kind of pounding the pavement and you know just you know finding those people to make those appropriate introductions. Um, you know, to uh, to those groups at the end of the day, and the the difficult part is many of them are going to be um, not waste of time at the end of the day, but many of them are going to be strikeouts. Um, you know, for for lack of a better analogy, and so they're you know you're you're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs right at the end of the day to get to what you want. Yeah, and it is um, emblematic of like a brute force strategy of. Going through your Rolodex, asking for introductions, finding people that can be believers. And we've had people on the show, for example, Elizabeth Yin. She talked to, I think it was like six or 700 LPs. Matt Conwell was like a thousand LPs and he's still, you know, out there raising. As you sort of look at all of these managers you've worked with, who has done it the most effectively? Are there managers that you found that not only have fundraised, have succeeded in, in terms of performance and then have been successful in like, leveling up their LP base effectively? Like, what are the things that you have to do between funds so that you don't run into the same cycle over and over and over again? Yeah, I think, like I said, proving out that strategy and being able to make that leap um, from, you know, more of a high net worth family office type of approach to more of an institutionalized approach from an LP perspective. And, and the way to do that, the most effective way to do that is um, to never stop fundraising um, at the end of the day. You know, you're always fundraising. And it, even if you're fundraising for fund one, have those meetings with any institution that'll take your call, that'll take your meeting, because they could be there for fund two, they could be there for fund three, because ultimately that's what they're looking for is to build those long-term relationships um, with individuals. And, and that's who they're going to invest in is the people they know and the people that they've gotten to know um, over a long time. And so, um, you know, we used to talk about this at True all the time. It's like fundraising never ends. We're always fundraising. Um, you know, uh, it was research over, you know, ABC always be closing, right? And so um, that's ultimately the strategy and the, and the approach that you need to take, which is really hard because you put all of this effort and all of this um, time into fundraising. And once you finally get to a point where you feel good about your fund one and it's closed, the last thing you want to do potentially is to keep fundraising, right? Um, and to keep having those meetings, but you really ultimately have to. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of um, you know, going out, not the hardest parts, but one of the hard parts of going out and starting a firm of your own is you're ultimately signing up for you know multiple jobs um, because you know fundraising really is a full-time job, but so is you know going out and finding amazing deals, right? And so is you know managing everything else associated with the firm. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really, it's really difficult to kind of, you know, find, find that balance. It is much more than just investing. And, that, and that's why I think a lot of people that leave large firms where they were just an investor and 
sourcing deals and working with portfolio founders have such a culture shock, right? Because there's so many different things you have to do. And fundraising takes a disproportionate amount of time, certainly during the raise. But oftentimes that raise is 12, 18 months and you're investing at the same time and you're trying to run the shop itself. And so what have you found in terms of particularly those that are solo GPs? Because I think solo GPs are probably the largest universe of people that are starting new funds. What have you found in terms of the distribution of time that's worked most effectively for your most successful managers? How much is like sourcing and investing and working with founders versus all the other stuff that goes into running a firm? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you have to start by realizing that you're, you're breaking it down um, over the course of like two, 150 or 200%, not 100%, right? Because you're going to have to work almost twice as hard at the end of the day. Um, and so I think that that's the first, um, the first hurdle that you need to get over. But I mean, I, I think it varies day by day, just depending on you know, what's, what's kind of bubbling up for, um, for the individuals that day. And so, you know, during fundraising, uh, I think that it's probably... 60 to 70 percent fundraising you know 30 percent or 40 percent um, deal sourcing um, I think that once you finally kind of close the fund maybe that shifts 60 40 the other way right so 60 70 percent deal sourcing but you're still like I said spending that you know 30 to 40 percent um, fundraising um, and then you know above that hundred percent that's the running of the firm right so that's kind of everything else that goes along with um, having a firm of your own. Which of course is equally important because it is about hiring and managing talents and making sure that, you know, the LP reports are going out and that, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint, like the security is there, you're managing your processes effectively. Because when you do level up from an LP standpoint, they're going to expect those type of things. But going back to for, for a second to the extra, let's say above 100%, all those things you have to do, do those in some ways have an impact on how people invest? In other words, because there's so much, do GP sometimes create smaller portfolios because they're like, look, I only can spend X amount of time. I can't, I can't have 50 companies. I really only need 35 companies to be able to do all the things I need to do. Or in certain cases, does it just prevent the GP from really adding any value to the, uh, the portfolio founders? What have you seen from a trend standpoint and like all the experiences you've had? Yeah, I think it definitely doesn't... Um... You know, necessarily take away from the value or the value creation that the GP is able to bring at the end of the day. I think that what it does is it just kind of places an, an importance and an emphasis on, um, you know, putting in place the appropriate providers around them um, to help support that. You know, what I always tell prospective clients is that, you know, our goal is to make um, it that they can spend as much time as possible sourcing and finding the best deals at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, that's our ultimate goal is we want to make it as hands-off as possible, you know, that infrastructure component, if you will, you know, us and other service providers, right? Us along with audit, along with tax, along with legal, right? So, you know, that kind of core set of four advisors, if you will, because that's ultimately what we are. Yes, we're service providers, but we're also providing an, an advisory component. Um, you know, making sure that that's solid, uh, I think really does kind of enable the, the, the GP, the manager to be able to go out and execute on the strategy that they want. I, I think that because of that time constraint or that time commitment that they that they need to place on the companies, it definitely can constrain, um, depending on their strategy, it can definitely constrain their portfolio composition. And maybe not on fund one, but especially thinking about fund two, right? I mean, fund two is even worse. You're jumping from you know managing a portfolio of 30 or whatever companies you have in fund one 
and then you're talking about adding you know 30 more right and it's not like those 30 from fund one suddenly go away and so you know there's a lot of balance to be figured out uh, on 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 their front um but yeah so you know i think that making sure that you have the best providers around you at the end of the day and not just in terms of you know solving for the tactical stuff but like i said solving for the advisory component you know giving that advice of you know what best practices are um, how to manage investor relations you know how to um, to deal with any sort of tax issues that come up or any sort of you know making sure that audit isn't an issue that ever comes up right and so you know just ensuring that all of that runs as smoothly as possible so that it doesn't create a distraction um, for for the investment strategy and you're one of those pillars right the outsource pillars that you provide advice but you also serve a critical function that relates to finance and rela- relates to LP relations Speaking of LPs, like the institutional ones especially, when managers are going from a fund one to fund two, or maybe even a fund two to fund three, and they're looking for these, how much attention are these LPs spending on that type of infrastructure? What type of diligence are they doing? You probably see some of the ODDs. What's being asked right now? Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised at how much attention is placed on it. Um, it's, it's actually a great deal. Um, and I think rightfully so, you know, you know, effectively, especially when thinking about a single member manager, you know, a single GP, your infrastructure and who's, you know, kind of handling things becomes potentially even more important, right? Um, because you want to make sure that there are appropriate checks and balances in place um, and processes in place and procedures, et cetera. And so we're, we're actually quite involved with... Um, the ODD process for, for many of our clients, um, you know, even you know, going through the ODD process directly with investors, with, with prospective LPs. We've even gotten to the point where we, where we have a you know, standard uh, due diligence questionnaire from an operational standpoint that we just provide to our clients to you know, preempt a lot of those questions um, that the investors you know, will have, you know, really kind of, again, ultimately trying to make this process as a whole as streamlined as we possibly can um, for our clients. And, you know, um, also providing, you know, sample policies, sample procedures, um, you know, et cetera, so that we can get those best practices in place. And we try to do a lot of that during fund one or during fund two, so that come fund two or fund three, not only can we say to that investor that, you know, yes, those are going to be, you know, executed on for that next fund, but, you know, we've already been doing them right from from kind of day one um, at this at this firm. Right, which which is which speaks to set the foundation early. Make sure you act as if you're already institutional back from the day you know from day one. Which I think a lot of people start to realize really early how important that stuff is. Let's zoom out for a second though. You've worked with 340 firms, and underneath that, I'm sure there's thousands of actually underlying funds. So you've seen a lot. Looking at all the managers you've worked with. What are some of the traits of the most successful emerging managers out there that you found, whether it be investing or how they operate a firm or how they acquire and retain talent? What have you seen? I, I think that, you know, ability to be flexible, um, just knowing that they're going to be pulled in you know different directions at all times. Um, like I said, they're effectively signing up for three jobs, not one at the end of the day. Um, you know, you're, um, you're, you're running your firm, you're fundraising and you're investing. Right. Um, you're, you're really kind of signing up for almost three full time jobs. We're going to take as much of you know, one of those off as possible. Um, but we obviously can't do your fundraising. We can't do your investing um, as much as we would like to. Right? It's just not going to happen. And so, um, yeah, so that's one one big successful trait uh, trait. And the other um, 
that, that we see a lot of is, is really kind of, you know, having a defined strategy and, and really sticking to it and executing on it. Um, I mean, you know, strategy, um, straying away from your strategy is, is one of the best ways to like create issues for you down the road. Yes, it might be successful and it might, you know, create returns for you today, um, but it will create difficulties down the road when you're looking to raise that next fund um, because that's what you're selling at the end of the day. Speaking of, you know, what, what you're selling, I, I learned this from, from the guys over at True um, and, and it still sticks with me today. You know, fund one, Basically, what you're selling is a promise. You're selling um, selling a dream, almost, right? You're selling a, a concept around a strategy. Fund two, you're selling the execution on that strategy because you're not going. Depending on what stage you're investing in, most for the most part, you're not going to have returns to be pointing to when you're selling fund two. You're going to be selling your ability to execute on that strategy. Fund three, then yeah, you're selling returns on fund one. So you better you know you better have some returns to point to. So you better have some numbers, but. And so, you know, having the ability to, to, to set that strategy, set that foundation and stick to it um, and really kind of execute on it, that at the core of it is, is uh, such an important trait. It's a good point. But, you know, I, I remember in the past, we always used to say fund threes are the hardest because by then it's like four, five, six years in, you have to show something. It is return based. Now, you can make the argument fund ones for a lot of people are equally or even tougher, but it is something that is, that is very, very true. Let's take the counter to this, and you you shared some of the characteristics that some of the successful managers you've worked with have done. What is the most common mistake that you see from managers that really impedes their ability to build a great franchise? Yeah, I, I think that, and it's not really common, we don't see a ton of it, and, and I know I keep coming back to it, but I think that um, straying from that strategy or, you know, basically... Um, not sticking to it and thinking, oh, I'm going to change it. I'm going to do this strategy now, and this is what's going to work, right? And and doing it for the sake of fundraising potentially, and thinking that that's going to change, um, you know, change the fundraising um, outcome at the end of the day. Like like I said, you you need to have conviction, um, and I guess that's what it really kind of ultimately boils down to. You need to have conviction as to what you're setting out to. Um, build ultimately, um, and what that strategy is, and not sticking with that conviction and not st- you know staying true to it, um, I think is probably one of the biggest um, the biggest mistakes, um, because LPs and potential investors are going to see that they're going to say, hey, you know, you were talking about this, and now you're talking about this, like why the change? Yeah, and why why does your portfolio look so different than what you you said it would be? And it seems like there's more ex- exceptions are become your portfolio versus you making exceptions where it makes sense, right? And so like strategy drift obviously is a big thing. Had we had this conversation in 2012, we would have never predicted the growth of the sector the way it has. And, you know, the numbers are all over the place. Like, you know, I've seen numbers as low as like 1,500 all the way up to 2,200. And it's probably at the higher end is my guess when you take into account like the really small funds, the rolling managers, what do you think happens now? We are year 13, 12, maybe 12, 12, 11 into a bull market. Things still look quite good. In fact, inflation is, is the thing that I think most people are worried about versus liquidity drying up. What do you see within the private fund market, particularly venture capital and, and the type of fund managers you work with? Yeah, I think because of the attention that it's garnered over recent years um, and the interest in it, I, I don't, you know, even if there was a big macro shift in the economy, I, I don't necessarily see 
that you know affecting um, this piece of the industry that significantly at the end of the day. Um, and we can always look back to you know the the, the 09 time frame and, and and prior to that. And and honestly, those were some of the best times to invest, right? At the end of the day. And so um, I think that a lot of people are cognizant of that and recognize that and are actually excited for that moment. Um, and they, they were really excited for that moment at the beginning of the pandemic and then it went the complete opposite direction, right? So I think it kind of to- totally took everybody for surprise, myself included. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, the, the growth is the growth is quite significant. I mean, like I said, we've got 340, you know, unique firms that we work with. We added 100 of those in 2020 uh, alone. You know, almost a third of our business was added during the pandemic. Um, and so I think that's really telling as to what's happening in the market um, as a whole. And I think that it will only continue, um, you know, as there's more tension, um, you know, placed on, on this market and there's, you know, a continued liquidity, um, but this is a long-term game and, you know, everybody recognizes that. So even if the liquidity dries up maybe for the next, you know, couple of years, whenever that happens, people recognize that that will come back and this is where they need to be investing a certain, you know, significant percentage of their portfolio to be able to capture those types of returns, those outsized returns, um, because at the end of the day, that's what you're betting on. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think there's, uh, you know, kind of uh, a, a significant shift, if you will, um, you know, based upon what's happening in the, in the broader in the broader environment. There's a number of tailwinds there that would suggest what you're saying would play out. It's the fact that technology is in a very different place than it was. I mean, the iPhone had just come out, you know, when we were looking at the last global financial crisis. But then you look at the growth of private wealth to where it is right now, over 70 trillion. You looked at, at the higher inclination toward alternatives, the understanding that privates are where you can get alpha. I mean, Amazon went public at a sub $500 million market cap. You're not going to see a coin, like and now it's Coinbase. And now it's all of these companies that are 20, 30, 40 billion and above. And then there's also tax advantages of investing, particularly at early stage because of things like QSBS, which a lot of people don't know about, but it's this great tax advantage of not having to pay federal long-term capital gains tax, right? But you know, you mentioned 100 uh, new clients in 2020. How many of those were brand new funds that came to market? I don't know off the top of my head, but a super majority were new funds coming to market. So that's, that's I think, what's even more intriguing and interesting is, you know, a lot of those were brand new names um, being formed in the midst of the pandemic, like right in the middle of it. And I'm glad you brought that up because there is a report, and I don't want to pick on PitchBook too much because I really like them, but there was a report that said that in 2020, the number of emerging funds was at an all-time, not an all-time low, but a low for like 10 years, and it was only like 70 firms. Just for anyone listening, I think what they captured is only funds that had their final close. And so it understates the number of active investors that came to market in 2020 that are actually actively writing checks, but still may not be at a final close. So it does speak to the length of the fundraising cycle. It also then suggests that whatever trend we were seeing is continuing. And that 2020 wasn't like this massive down period. I think we had a two year, two month down period. I think it was like March, April, and maybe into May. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at our numbers, it's almost like, it's almost perfect. You know, March kind of flattens out a little bit and then all of a sudden it just, you know, takes off. Yeah. And it was a weird environment because, you know, everybody expected the markets to, to take this huge hit. And, you know, all of a sudden 
we had the complete inverse where people were actually, you know, had capital available and had, had a lot of capital put to work. And, you know, what better place than within, you know, the, the world of venture. And so we saw a lot of that inflow of capital coming into, you know, our existing client base, but also all of these new firms being, being formed and created. And I think that that trend, like you said, will only continue with, you know, more and more access to that capital, more and more of that capital being available to um, to venture managers. Um, and also, you know, hopefully, you know, better better discovery on, on both sides of the equation, you know, better discovery on the LPGP, um, you know, side of things. Agree. And we remain extremely bullish about early stage and venture and private assets as, as a category. And I do remember there was a survey or a study that was done, I think it was 2017, where, you know, we looked at 885 funds from 2003 to 2015. And of those 885 roughly firms, there was only, I believe it was 1% of those firms had returned to 5x or higher, tiny amounts, less than 10. And I know for a fact, and you probably have seen this too, that over the last decade, I've seen multiple funds that are over 25x, some that are over 50x, right? So the, the outliers have gotten bigger. And if you look at the power law, the power law is amplified to a point where a 3x net return on a fund is not considered a massive outlier. In fact, that's considered okay. That's kind of the average these days, right? Um, that's the average, yeah. Yeah, you've got you know some of our early clients, um, you know, kind of you know uh, really shifting that. You've got the ribbits and the lower cases, um, you know, kind of really, you know, being those huge exceptions to the rule. And you know, it's yeah, the the, the returns, especially on these smaller funds, like you mentioned earlier, um, are they they can be extremely outsized. Yeah. And, and other names you could bring up, and these are, you know, you're just reading about it, and you could look at the initialize or even Altos, which, you know, was, all, you know, fund that had Roblox in it for 17 years, and now is going to be one of the best performing funds of all time. So you definitely see it's because the outcomes are bigger than they've ever been before. And I do think that brings a lot of liquidity. So it, it'll be fun to track this together. Congrats on the, uh, the business that you've built. I know there's a lot ahead, and I'm excited to... Uh, to see what's in store. But thanks again for being on the show and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. Enjoyed it. And yeah, look forward to, to seeing what this uh, market does, uh, you know, as we, as we build uh, collectively together. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Brahm and Adura Advisors, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released.